Father, um, each Sunday we gather together. It's another opportunity for us to preach the gospel to ourselves and to one another, to remind ourselves of, of the glorious truths of what our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ has accomplished. Lord, we acknowledge once again to you that, that we are a, a weak and needy people. Uh, we indeed fail and we, we do uh, get addicted to things, but our problem runs even deeper than that. Our problem is that we are sinners, that we have committed crimes against you, and that we are enslaved to that sin, which that problem is what makes uh, the promise of the gospel so glorious that God sent his only begotten son uh, to die for us and to rise from the dead, that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. And your salvation uh, is something that is unshakable because you are the rock of ages and because we are in your hands, no matter what circumstances come, we can sing all is well with our soul because you have saved our soul, you have washed us clean, and you are holding us in your hand, and you will bring us safely to your heavenly kingdom. So we thank you for these, these deep truths that we've sung, and we pray that uh, you'd continue to teach us through your word as we study it together. Give us understanding of things that are hard to understand, and Lord, help us to apply to our lives things that are hard to apply. We need your grace, we need your spirit, uh, we cannot do this without you. So we, we ask for your help and confident that you will extend that help. Thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, let's open our Bibles and turn to Galatians 2. Just a couple preliminary remarks uh, before we begin digging into this passage. Uh, these verses that we're covering today, chapter 2, verses 17 to 19, they're some of the most difficult in this letter, and so I'm, I'm going to strive to pay very close particular attention to the wording, and so if you have a bit of a looser translation, like a, a New Living translation, or a paraphrase or something like that, you're probably going to get lost, so I would encourage you to grab your pew Bible, um, which is the ESV. I'm preaching from the NASB. If you have a King James or a New King James those give you a clearer window into the original text and you'll be able to more easily follow along. I just don't want you completely lost as we're working through these, these three verses. So let me read Galatians 2, verses 17 through 19. And this is still Paul giving his speech to Peter. Verse 17, Paul says, well, you know what? Let me start back up in verse 14 so we can get the whole thing. Verse 14. But when I, Paul, saw that they, Peter and the other Jewish believers, were not straightforward about the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas, or Peter, in the presence of all, if you, being a Jew, live like the Gentiles and not like the Jews, how is it that you compel the Gentiles to live like Jews? We are Jews by nature and not sinners from among the Gentiles. Nevertheless, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Christ Jesus, even we have believed in Christ Jesus, so that we may be justified, which we learned last week is declared righteous, so that we may be 
declared righteous by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law, since by the works of the law no flesh will be justified. Verse 17, But if, while seeking to be justified in Christ, we ourselves have also been found sinners, is Christ then a minister of sin? May it never be. For if I rebuild what I have once destroyed, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law, I died to the law, so that I might live to God. In Luke's Gospel, chapter 9 and verse 26, Jesus says this, Whoever is ashamed of me and my words, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his glory, and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. Have you ever been embarrassed to say to your family or to your friends or to your neighbors or to your co-workers that you believe what Jesus said, that you agree with what Jesus said about a certain topic. And because of that embarrassment, have you ever shrunk back from acting in a way uh, that is in keeping with what Jesus said? Do you ever start acting in a way that implies that you don't really agree with what Jesus said? I know I have, and that's wrong. It's wrong to be embarrassed by the words of Jesus. It's wrong to behave like I don't believe what he said is true. It's wrong. But our God forgives, and he gives us grace to be able to stand up for Christ the next time an opportunity presents itself. I struggle with that. I'm sure you do. And you and I are not alone in this struggle because we see that Peter sinned in the exact same way. We saw him shrink back from standing up for Christ on that Good Friday evening with Jesus. And we're seeing him here shrink back from standing up for Christ. He is being ashamed of Christ as we see in, in this passage of chapter 2. Sometimes when we are tempted to be ashamed of Jesus and his words, we need to be reminded of the truth of his words. It's not enough for someone to say, that's wrong for being ashamed. No, we have to help someone get past that, turn from that by explaining to them why that's wrong, why they don't need to be ashamed about Jesus, why they should be proud of Jesus and boast about him. It's not enough to simply say, that's wrong. We need to help the brother or sister renew their mind. We need to help them move through the fog that the fear of man has produced in their own minds, and we have to help each other and bring each other into the clearer air of reverence for Christ and being able to see that it is the most ridiculous thing in the world to be ashamed of the most wonderful person in the world. But fear of man gets us all twisted and confused. And what we see in verses 17 to 19 is Paul helping Peter see why he does not need to be ashamed of standing on the words of Jesus Christ. Now, in order to understand what Paul is saying in verses 17 through 19, it's important to remember the context in which we find these verses. When you rip a verse out of context, you can make it mean pretty much whatever you want it to mean. So we have to keep in mind the context in which these three difficult verses are found. So let's remind ourselves of what's going on here. Well, remember, Paul is speaking to Peter here. 
And remember that Peter had visited the church in Antioch where Paul was. And while Peter was visiting, his normal practice while there was to eat meals with Gentile believers, sharing their food and sharing their company. And sharing food that Gentiles were eating was not allowed under the law of Moses, right? That was prohibited. There were certain foods you couldn't eat, and certain foods the Gentiles did eat, and if you were eating what they were eating, you would be violating the law. Well, here's Peter violating the law by eating what the Gentiles were eating. Now, why did he feel free to do that? We went through that, remember? Remember back in Acts chapter 10, God showed Peter a vision, this sheet coming down out of heaven with all sorts of unclean animals on it, and God told Peter, kill and eat. And Peter at first balked at the idea, saying, I've never eaten anything unclean. And God said, what I have made clean, don't call unclean. And he was talking about food, but he was also talking about men. Hence why Peter is eating with Gentile believers, because God has pronounced clean that food and that company. Under the new covenant, that is what God had done, right? God had instituted a new covenant, And when there's a new covenant, sometimes there's new rules. And under the new covenant, no longer was it required to to, uh, not eat certain things. So that's why Peter felt free to mingle together with these Gentile believers. But what happened? Some men, right, who were associated with James, they came down from Jerusalem to visit the church at Antioch. And once they came, Peter did what? He stopped having table fellowship with the Gentile believers. Why did he stop? Because he was afraid of what the Jews would think about him sharing a table with Gentiles. And as a result of Peter uh, refraining from fellowshipping with them anymore, the other Jewish believers in the church of Antioch followed his lead. They also began to withdraw their fellowship from Uh, their Gentile brothers and sisters in Christ. And by doing so, Peter and the other believing Jews in Antioch, they had begun to do what? They'd begun to place themselves back under the law of Moses by obeying certain food laws that the law of Moses stipulated. Now, in and of itself, is it wrong to not eat something? No, right? That in and of itself was not sin. The sin here was that Peter was acting like the law of Moses was still a barrier between Jew and Gentile, such that a believing Gentile could not fellowship with a believing Jew until that Gentile began obeying all that the law of Moses said. That's what was wrong. Peter's behavior was a denial of the new covenant that Jesus had instituted. His behavior implied that someone needed to be justified, declared righteous, by the works of the law, and not simply by believing in Jesus. Peter, in other words, had started to be ashamed of the gospel of Christ. That is the context in which we find these verses. And in verses 17 through 19, we're going to see Paul give Peter three reasons of why he should not be ashamed of Jesus. And we're going to apply those reasons to us today. Three reasons why you and I 
should not be ashamed of Jesus Christ. And the first reason why we should not be ashamed of Jesus is Jesus is holy. Jesus is holy. We see that in verse 17. Let me just recap 15 and 16 briefly first. Paul reminded Peter in verses 15 to 16 that they had both come to understand that a man cannot be declared righteous by the works of the law. They had understood that that wasn't possible because no one has kept the works of the law perfectly. That way of being made right with God was not an option for anyone. Therefore, even though Paul and Peter were not quote-unquote Gentile sinners, even they had believed in Jesus Christ. Paul continues in verse 17. Let's read verse 17. He says, But if, while seeking to be justified in Christ, we ourselves, you and me, Peter, have also been found sinners, like the Gentiles, is Christ then a minister or a servant of sin? May it never be. Here in verse 17, Paul acknowledges the reality that as he and Peter were seeking to be justified, declared righteous, by faith in Jesus, he was acknowledging the reality that he and Peter were found to be what? Verse 17, sinners, right? Just like who? Up in verse 15, the Gentiles, right? This right here is the great stumbling block of the cross that has tripped up people for centuries. In order to be justified by faith in Christ, you first have to admit what? You have to be willing to be seen by others as what? You have to acknowledge that God sees you as what? That's right, sinners who are in need of a Savior, right? And that is something that in our wicked pride we are so often unwilling to do. Until you and I are willing to confess our sins to God, we are lying to ourselves by thinking that we're okay and that we can get to God under the steam of our own moral power. That's what we think. But the truth is that you and I cannot be justified that way. If we're trying to get to God through the works of the law, what's the verdict we're going to hear on the last day? Guilty. The judge is going to condemn us, not justify us. Now, once you do humble yourself, and once you do admit that you're a sinner, and once you do run to Christ by faith for salvation, what do others who have not yet humbled themselves, think of you. They think you are weak, right? They see that they are better than you. They say, yeah, you might need a savior, but I don't. I'm good. I can handle it. And when they see people like you, all of these self-professed, weak, sinful people flocking to Jesus, it colors how they see Jesus as well. They see you as weak, and they see Jesus as a weak man's savior. He's just the easy way out for people who couldn't cut it, like you. Now, for the unbelieving Jew, there was an added dimension to what they thought of Jesus. They didn't simply see Jesus as a weak man's savior. They also saw him as someone who actively was encouraging people to sin by breaking the law of Moses. 
The unbelieving Jew saw Jews like Peter and Paul violating certain laws that were laid down in the law of Moses, like don't eat pork, right? And they saw that Peter and Paul were eating things like pork in the company of Gentiles, and they saw that Peter and Paul were doing this in whose name? Jesus' name, right? And because of that, unbelieving Jews would not only see Jesus as a weak man, Savior, but they would see him as, in the words of Paul, a minister of sin. That word, uh, if I remember right, is diakonos, a deacon of sin, a servant of sin. And they thought that about Jesus because they failed to recognize that Jesus was the Messiah and that he had ushered in the new covenant. And with a new covenant, there come new rules. They failed to recognize that about Jesus because they were unwilling to do what? To confess themselves as sinners, to acknowledge that they couldn't measure up to what the law of God was commanding them. Now that right there, that unbelieving Jewish estimation of Jesus is why Paul tacks on that question on the end of verse 17. Hey, hey Peter, you and me, believing in Jesus, we are found to be sinners. Jesus is telling us to not do certain things, or said Jesus is telling us that we don't have to do certain things that the law says we have to do. Does that mean then that Christ is a servant of sin? That objection by the, the unbelieving Jew was probably part of why Peter was afraid of the circumcision. He was afraid of being seen as a willing sinner by them, someone who would willingly violate the law of Moses. And so he shrunk back from fellowshipping with the Gentiles. He started being ashamed of Jesus, starting being ashamed of the words of Jesus. Now we know that Jesus was one who associated himself with sinners. And he was the one telling his people that they didn't need to observe certain portions of the law of Moses, like don't eat pork. Peter was probably afraid that if he continued to act on Jesus' words by fellowshipping with the Gentiles, it was going to make him look like a sinner. So Paul asked Peter here in verse 17, if you and I are found to be sinners by believing in Jesus, does that really mean that Jesus is a servant of sin, like the unbelieving Jews think? And what's Paul's answer to his own question? He vehemently says, may it never be. He's disgusted by the thought that Jesus would be a servant of sin. Just because Jesus eats and drinks with sinners and calls sinners to believe in him and to follow him, and just because he frees his people from obligation to the law of Moses, it does not follow that he is then a servant of sin. It does not mean that he is an encourager of sin. That was the error of the Pharisees, remember? Let's go back to Luke chapter 5. Remember uh, Matthew, uh, he was sitting in the, the tax collector's booth, and Jesus said, come follow me. And Matthew threw a party. And, and Luke, he's, he's called Levi, but he threw a party. And what are the kinds of people he invited? Tax collectors and sinners, right? His buddies, people he, he fellowshiped with. And he invites Jesus and the rest of the disciples to come to that party as well. And the Pharisees see this going on. Look at Luke chapter 5, verse 30. 
the Pharisees and their scribes began grumbling at his disciples and saying, Why do you eat and drink with the tax collectors and sinners? They thought that Jesus and his disciples eating and drinking with the tax collectors and sinners meant that Jesus and his disciples approved of their sin, right? But how does Jesus respond? Verse 31, Jesus answered and said to them, It is not those who are well who need a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. You see, to say that Jesus loves sin just because he associates with those who are afflicted by sin is like saying a doctor loves disease, or like saying a teacher loves ignorance, or saying like a pest control technician loves pests. It's just not a logical conclusion to draw, right? Paul is reminding Peter here, he's showing Peter that he doesn't need to be ashamed to stand on the words of Jesus. These unbelieving Jews think Jesus is a minister of sin. He's helping Peter realize, no, he's not. And me acting on Jesus' words by fellowshipping with these Gentile believers is not uh, me encouraging sin, and it's not me saying Jesus encourages sin. I don't need to buy into that objection from the Jews. I can stand unashamed on what Jesus said I can do. Far from being a servant of sin, Jesus is a savior from sin. When he calls sinners to himself, he's not calling them to himself to approve of their sin. He's calling them to himself to save them from their sin. Jesus is holy. He's not unholy. So Peter ought not to fear those of the circumcision who say that Jesus is unholy. So that's the first reason we see why we shouldn't be ashamed of Jesus. He's holy. We shouldn't be intimidated by those who say he's not. The second reason why we shouldn't be ashamed of Jesus is, we're going to see in verse 18, Jesus is the only way to be right with God. Jesus is the only way to be right with God. There's many people who try to say there are many ways to God. And as you listen to those people, you might feel embarrassed to say Jesus is the only way. You might feel like you're a bigot or that you're prejudiced or something like that. And so you might say, well, I've chosen Jesus as the way, but I understand there's other ways. No, that's not what Jesus said. John 14, 6, I am the way and the truth and the life. No man comes to the Father except through me. He's the only way. We need not be ashamed to say that he's the only way. And that's what Paul reminds Peter of here. Look at verse 18. Paul says, For if I rebuild what I have once destroyed, I prove myself to be a transgressor. Here, Paul gives a reason for why it's ridiculous to think that Jesus is a servant of sin. Why it's ridiculous to think that because sinners come to Jesus for justification, because his followers don't do all that the law of Moses says, it is ridiculous to draw the conclusion that therefore he's the servant of sin. And he gives a reason why in verse 18. That's a ridiculous thing to think because far from Jesus being a servant of sin, it is actually the one who's trying to be justified by law who remains a servant of sin. So these objectors, they're saying Jesus is a servant of sin, and it's like Paul is saying, 
that's a silly thing to say when actually you are the one who are still serving sin by trying to be made right with God by the law. The objector is blind to his own state. And that's what he brings out in verse 18. Now, how do I get that from verse 18? Paul here speaks of rebuilding something that one has torn down. And he speaks in the first person, I. If I rebuild what I have torn down, I prove myself a transgressor. Well, he's, he's speaking in the first person, placing himself in Peter's sandals, or in the sandals of anyone who would do that kind of action, rebuilding what you've, you've destroyed. Now remember the context so that we can understand what Paul is saying. What was Peter doing before the men from James came? He was eating with the Gentile believers, right? He was eating Gentile food with the Gentile sinners, something the law of Moses had prohibited. And he was doing that because, why? Because of Acts 10, what God showed Peter, that such laws were no longer required of his people. So in that sense, Peter had destroyed or torn down the law. Now, Peter didn't do that because he'd gone rogue and was just doing whatever he wanted to do. No, he tore it down because God had torn it down. He was simply acting on Christ's authority. Now, let's go to Ephesians because I think this will make verse 18 a lot clearer because it doesn't really click. We don't think of Peter eating with the Gentiles as the law being ripped down. So this, this cross-reference will help us. Ephesians 2, verse 11. Paul writing to the believing Gentile Ephesians. Chapter 2, verse 11, he says, Therefore, remember that formerly you, the Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by the so-called circumcision, which is performed in the flesh by human hands, remember that you were at that time separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. In other words, they were separate from the Jews. They were cut off from the promises that the Jews were enjoying just by virtue of how God was interacting with the Jews as opposed to the Gentiles during that Old Testament time. Verse 13, but now in Christ Jesus, you who formerly were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Whatever barrier was there in verses 11 and 12, in Christ it's, it's removed because then you've got Jew and Gentile together fellowshipping with each other. Verse 14, for he himself is our peace who made both groups into one. How did he do that? Made both groups into one and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall. What was this dividing wall? Verse 15, by abolishing in his flesh the enmity, which is what? The law of commandments contained in ordinances so that in himself he might make the two, Jew and Gentile, into one new man, thus establishing peace, and might reconcile them both in one body to God through the cross, by it having put to death the enmity. You see there that, that in Christ, under the new covenant, that passage uses tearing down type language, right? 
So Peter, when he was fellowshipping with the Gentiles in Antioch, what, what was he doing? He was simply tearing down what Christ had torn down. He was that barrier between Jew and Gentile. He said, get that out of the way. God says, I don't need to observe that anymore. I'm going to have lunch with these brothers in Christ. On Christ's authority, Peter had torn down that wall and he had climbed over the rubble to join the believing Gentiles at their table. But what did he do once the men from James came? He got up from their table, he climbed back through the rubble to the other side, and he picked up his trowel and a bucket of mortar, and he started rebuilding that wall between him and the Gentiles. And Paul says here in verse 18 that anyone who does that, anyone who does what Peter had begun to do, proves himself what? A transgressor. Well, how so? How does that work? Well, I can think of three ways how that is so. First, as we've already seen, by putting yourself back under the law, you are putting yourself back on the dead-end road of trying to be declared righteous by God by the works of the law. At the end of that road, what's the verdict you're going to hear from God? Guilty. You are a transgressor. You've broken my law. Go to the lake of fire. That's what we will hear if we try to get to him that way. Second, the second way rebuilding the wall proves you a transgressor is this. By rebuilding the wall of separation, you're implying that you were wrong to tear it down in the first place, right? You're admitting, oh, that was wrong. Me tearing that down, that was wrong. And you're rebuilding something that by the very act of, of you admitting that it was wrong for you to tear it down, you've condemned yourself, right? That's the second way. And the third is probably most obvious. By rebuilding what God had told him in Acts 10 to tear down, Peter was doing what? He was disobeying God's express command. So, referring back to verse 17, who's the servant of sin, really? Is it Jesus? Is he the servant of sin? Or is it instead one who, like Peter, tries to rebuild the wall of the law? It's the one who tries to rebuild that wall who is a servant of sin. By going against God himself, that person proves himself a transgressor. And he unwittingly puts himself back under the mastery of sin. Jesus is the only way to be declared right by God. If you abandon him and try to find another way by going back under the law or whatever else you might think, all you're doing is proving yourself a transgressor. And you will only hear condemnation on that day. Only through Christ can we be declared righteous by God. He's the only way. And so, Peter, don't be ashamed of these Jewish objectors who are acting like their way is an actual way to God. It's not. Stop being ashamed that Jesus is the only way because he is the only way. Stand on what Jesus said. He's your only hope. He's our only hope. The third reason why we should not be ashamed of Jesus is what we find in verse 19, and that is Jesus frees us from sin. Jesus frees us from sin. Let's look at verse 19. Paul says, For through the law I died to the law, so that I might live to God. 
This verse is counterintuitive because Paul is saying that it actually honors the law of God to tear down the law of God. He's saying, I'm, I'm not against the law when I've torn it down. I'm actually honoring what the law says. He explains here why tearing down the law was not wrong. He explains why it was right to abandon law-keeping as a way to get right with God and to instead seek that right standing through faith in Christ. Paul says here in verse 19 that far from being against the law, it was through the law that he died to the law. Law was the very instrument through which he died to the law's demands and condemnation. I'm sure it's still not clear. What is Paul talking about? How is it that through the law he died to the law, such that it's okay to tear down the law and go eat with Gentiles? Well, we get a clue from verse 20. Let's, we're not covering verse 20 today, but we've got to get there, grab our clue, and then run back to verse 19 to figure out what Paul's saying. So let's read verse 20. Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ. And it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. In verse 20, what aspect of the Christian life is Paul talking about? Starts with a U. Any ideas? It's five letters. Oh yeah, that's almost there. Union. Basically, you got it. Good job, Dad. Union with Christ. That's what he's talking about in verse 20. What is union with Christ? Well, I think we'll get into it more next week. But to just put it simply, or to try to put it simply, union with Christ involves our identification with him and his identification with us. In Christ's life, in his death, in his resurrection, what did he do? He represented us. He substituted himself for us. His actions counted for ours, and the benefits of his accomplishments were given to us. It's like he put us on his back, and he went to that cross, and he died in our place, and then he rose from the dead, carrying us all the way through it so that his actions were counted as our actions. There's far more that could be said about union with Christ, but hopefully that's enough to get our minds headed in the right way. In verse 19, Paul says that through the law he died to the law so that he might live to God. And then he follows that up with verse 20 where he says he was what with Christ? Crucified, which is a way to die, right? Crucified with Christ. And that he no longer lives, but Christ lives in him. So, taking that thought of verse 20, let's go back to verse 19. Paul says, through the law, I died to the law. Now, obviously, Paul was alive when he wrote this letter, right? So, what does he mean that he died to the law? Well, he died in the sense that Jesus died for him, and the benefits of Jesus' death are given to him. Let's, let's think through this some more to get a better understanding of what Paul's saying. Look over at chapter 4 and verse 4. How is it that through law, Paul dies to law? How is it that through law, he dies to law? Well, look at chapter 4, verse 4. 
Paul says, But when the fullness of the time came, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under what? The law. Paul is speaking about the incarnation here. In the incarnation, the Son of God didn't merely become a man. He became a man who was subject to the law's demands. He came into this world needing to obey everything in God's law. And did he succeed? Yes, he did. That's what the rest of the scriptures say. He did it perfectly. He fulfilled the law's demands. He obeyed it every step of the way. And because of the believer's union with Christ, Jesus' obedience to God's law counts as our obedience. But that's not enough. The people that Jesus came to save are what kind of people? A law-breaking people, right? It wasn't enough for Jesus to obey the law for us. He also needed to suffer the penalty of the law for us. He had to deal with our guilt, right? He had to deal with our guilt, with the fact that we broke what the law said. He had to deal with that. That is why Jesus went to the cross. Unless he dealt with our guilt, God could never, as a just judge, declare us righteous. Our guilt had to be dealt with. Let's go uh, over to Mark chapter 10, where we see Jesus talking about this need to deal with our guilt. Mark chapter 10 and verse 45. Jesus says, For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. What's a ransom? It's a payment you give in order to get someone back, right? And the ransom price was the life of the Son of God incarnate himself. Because of the believer's union with Christ, his suffering of the penalty of God's law counted for us. So, Think back to the Jewish objection in verse 17. Jesus is a servant of sin. Well, Paul is saying, by saying, through the law, through the law I died to the law, he's, he's, he's packaging this idea of union with Christ into this tiny little verse. And this, this idea of union with Christ totally contradicts that objection that he's a servant of sin. If Jesus was serving sin, why would he pour himself out to do everything that the law required for him to do. Jesus is not anti-law like the Jewish unbelievers thought. Jesus believed in God's law, he loved God's law, he obeyed God's law, and he fulfilled God's law perfectly, even going to the extent of bearing the penalty of the law for his people who could not. He loved God, and he loved the law of God so much that he fulfilled it all on our behalf. So in light of that, let's consider Galatians 2:19 again. When Paul says the phrase through the law I died to the law, he's speaking of the fact that Jesus fulfilled all that the law required by perfectly obeying the law and by fully paying the penalty of the law that was required for those who have broken the law. When Jesus died on the cross, what did he say? It is finished, right? At that moment, 
All that the law required was satisfied. When you execute a murderer, there's nothing else the law requires. The penalty was paid. There's nothing else that the law demands of of that criminal. When Jesus died for us, he exhausted all that the law required. And because he had done it for his people, that means that the law requires no more of us either. Since the law required no more of Jesus once he died, so the law requires no more of us for whom he lived and died. So do you see that through the law, we died to the law? You see what Paul is saying there? The law requires no more of us because in our stead, Jesus fulfilled it all. And in our stead, he paid the penalty that we deserved to to, to pay. The law has no more requirement or hold on us because Jesus fulfilled it all for us. But notice in verse 19 how Paul does not stop by saying that he died to the law. Some who don't understand the grace of God would like for Paul to stop right there. I died to the law so that they can have a license to sin. Oh, God's law requires no more of me? Great, I can just go, sin, do whatever I want to do without any fear of punishment. But Paul doesn't stop by saying, I died to the law. What does he go on to say in verse 19? He gives the great result that comes about from his union with Jesus. He says, through the law, I died to the law so that what? I might live to God. When Jesus died on the cross, having fulfilled all that the law of God required, he didn't stay dead. That's why we're sitting here today. He rose from the dead. And because he's united to his people, he does what? He raises them up to new life as well. And that new life that you and I have in Christ is a life that is directed not toward sin, but toward who? Toward God, right? The one who has truly died with Christ and who has been raised up with Christ does not want to keep sinning. He wants or she wants to follow God. And in Christ, he or she finally can start obeying God. Paul says this very thing over in Romans. Let's go to Romans 7. And in this chapter, Paul uses the marriage covenant as an illustration of this truth of union with Christ. In verses 1 to 3, Paul speaks of the marriage covenant. Romans 7, verses 1 to 3, he says, Or do you not know, brethren, for I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law has jurisdiction over a person as long as he lives? For the married woman is bound by law to her husband while he is living. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law concerning the husband. So then... If while her husband is living, she is joined to another man, she shall be called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she is free from the law, so that she is not an adulteress, though she is joined to another man. In marriage, husband and wife are what? They are one flesh, united together. And the law requires that the wife be what to her husband? Faithful, right? Faithful. 
But when the husband dies, because the wife is united to him, it is as though she died to what the law required of her. Through his death, she dies to the requirement that she remain faithful to him, right? She is freed up to go and marry another man. Then in verse 4, Paul applies that illustration to believers. Verse 4, Therefore, my brethren, you also were made to die to the law through the body of Christ. There's that same phrase. You were made to die to the law through the body of Christ so that you might be joined to another, to him who was raised from the dead, in order that we might bear fruit for God. Through faith, we are united to Christ. When he died, we died with him to what the law required of us, and we were freed to be joined to another under a new covenant, not the previous covenant. When he died, we died to what that old covenant required of us, and we were free under a new covenant to be joined to another, to the resurrected Christ. And having been joined to the resurrected Christ, according to verse 4, what are we enabled to do? What does the end of verse 4 say? Romans 7. So that we might bear fruit for God, which is like what Paul said in Galatians 2.19, so that I might live to God, right? Then, we're not done with Romans 7, in verse 5, Paul explains why it is that while a person is under the law, he cannot bear fruit for God. Why is it that the person under the old covenant can't live to God, like Paul says he is now able to do, having died to the law? Why is it that the person under the old covenant, trying to be justified by works, why is it that that person cannot bear fruit for God? Well, look at verse 5. Paul says, For while we are in the flesh, the sinful passions which were aroused by the law were at work in the members of our body to bear fruit for death. He explains that we're born sinners and the law of God can tell us what to do and what not to do, but it cannot do what? It cannot give us the ability to actually do it. It doesn't deal with our sin. And verse 6 tells us that it is only the new life which we have in Christ that can give us the ability to do what, what God requires us to do. Look at verse 6. Paul says, But now we have been released from the law, having died to that by which we were bound, so that we serve in newness of the Spirit and not in oldness of the letter. So you see, while we were under the law, while we were trying to earn a right standing with God by the works of the law, we were never able to actually do what the law required us to do. It's only when we come out from under the law by trusting in Jesus that we're actually enabled to do what God wants us to do. So, again, contrary to the Jewish objection that Jesus is a minister of sin, not only is Jesus not anti-law, but his people are not anti-law either. Just because Jesus' people are not trying to earn God's favor through law-keeping, that doesn't mean they're promoters of sin. Far from it. Those who follow Jesus are actually the ones who truly love God, who truly love righteousness, and who can actually begin living lives characterized by that righteousness because they've been saved by God. So Peter, did Peter need to be ashamed 
to be seen as someone who was pursuing sin? No, because that's not the reality. Jesus had freed him to finally start pursuing God. He didn't need to be ashamed of that false idea that the Jewish objectors had. So do you see, I hope you see, these are hard verses. I'm sure I didn't explain them as clearly as I ought to. But do you see, with, do you see how Paul is dealing with Peter's fear here? Peter was afraid that the Jews would see him as a rebel against God if he kept eating with the Gentiles. But Paul reminds Peter that it's actually those who are trying to earn God's favor by the works of the law who are the rebels. And if Peter continues down the road that he started going down, rebuilding that wall, he was just going to be what he was afraid of seeing, uh, afraid of being seen to be, a rebel. We're only able to do what God wants if we trust Christ alone to be our righteousness before God. So the one who can live to God or for God is not the proud law keeper. It's the humble Christ truster. So just trying to apply this to us. Whenever you feel ashamed of Jesus, try to take a moment and think, why am I ashamed? What is it about what the unbelievers are saying that is, is striking me as a valid point? What am I being convinced by from them that I'm willing to take a step back away from the Bible and start living how they want me to live instead of how Christ wants me to live? Identify what, what their argument is and then get a brother or sister in Christ and study the Bible together and see how the Word of God refutes what they're saying. And once you've washed your heart and your mind in the water of the Word, that will clear away the fog of fearing man and you will see, I don't need to be ashamed of Jesus. I am proud of my Savior. I boast in who he is. He's holy. He's the only way to God. And he frees me to be able to live for God. I'm not going to be ashamed of him. All right, let's pray. Lord, we thank you that we have a mighty Savior, a Savior who we do not need to be ashamed of. Please forgive, me, forgive us, Lord, for when we do fall into the fear of man and we become ashamed of our Savior. May you do for us what you did for Peter. May you remind us of the truth of who our Savior is so that we may see that we only have reason to boast in who Jesus is. We have no reason to be ashamed. And may that truth wash our hearts and our minds and may you help us to stand boldly for our Savior, standing on his word, knowing there is no more solid ground than that to stand upon. In Jesus' name we ask it. Amen.